0: You're listening to Healthcare Now Radio. Stand by for this just in, the latest in healthcare innovation and technology trends with your HIT advisor, Justin Barnes.
1: Thank you for tuning in, and welcome to this Justin. I'm your host, Justin Barnes, and these half-hour segments, I'll bring you the latest advancements in healthcare, strategy, innovation, and public policy. As always, we're broadcasting from the This Justin Studios on the Business Radio X Network as well as the Healthcare Now Radio Network. And before we dive in with our special show today, I want to take a moment to let everyone know that we'll be broadcasting the This Justin Radio Show again live from the HIMSS Annual Conference in Las Vegas on Wednesday, March 7th from 10 a.m. Pacific to 2 p.m. Pacific. Many more details to come here shortly, but I hope everyone is planning on attending the conference. If you are not, though, you'll be able to stream our radio show live at thisjustinradio.com. We'll have another great slate of CEO, CIO, leading care providers, industry thought leaders, riveting authors, and certainly policymakers joining the show. For this episode, though, my 117th episode, we're going to focus on a new book coming out uh, called Realizing the Promise of Precision Medicine uh, by Paul Serrado and Dr. John Halamka. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you very much.
1: Very excited. We're going to do a special episode today, basically a double episode. There was just so much content that we were passing back and forth, um, prepping for the show, and so I couldn't uh, be more excited. Only This is only my second one. We've done a double episode all, all tied up into one big bow, so very excited about what's before us, guys. So let's dive in a little bit. John, you're very well known in the industry um, and I've been on the show. You're certainly a great friend of the show. I've been on the show numerous times. But I'll offer the background, people that may not know you that well. I'll offer back a little bit of background on you and where you're from, college, all that good stuff.
2: Wow. It all started when I was twelve years old, and I was a latchkey child in Southern California in the seventies with the heyday of the defense industry. And back then they threw away all the integrated circuits that didn't t- test good enough for military specs. So as a 12-year-old, I ran around to dumpsters, picking up integrated circuits, and taught myself analog digital logic and then microprocessors. So when I arrived at Stanford in 1979, I was the first person to have a computer in my dorm room, and the rest is history.
1: <laughs> that Actually, I've never heard that before. That is fascinating. That's awesome. So what drove you to Stanford?
2: Well, think about it late 70s early 80s Mm. you just had popular electronics publish the specifications for the altair 8800 you could homebrew your own computer you had the this is pre ibm pc pre apple everybody in the industry was just starting to coalesce and palo alto just turned out to be that mecca so what a fabulous opportunity to actually sort of go to school and I did public policy, economics, and biochemistry while the industry was evolving around us. It worked really well.
1: No, that's fascinating. I actually went out there to start Relay Health back in 1999. So uh, I went. To, we lived in Palo Alto, started the company in Alameda, and um, I, I love the Valley for what it, uh, what, how it helps you and, and what you learn and who you collaborate with. So it certainly was a great area, but I love where I live now in the South, so it was a great place to be then. Sounds like you were in a similar boat there. So, before di- yeah, before we dive into the show a little bit um, and dive into the book, what are a few secrets of your success, John? Because, again, you've done very well. You are all over the place. We do see you everywhere, and we love what you do. But, uh, what are a few secrets to your success?
2: Well, so my brain has always done better if I take an issue, dive very deeply into it, mm-hmm. really focus on it. And, you know, that that kind of approach, I wonder, does it work any longer in 2018 when the average attention span is three seconds or less? Uh, Because if you take a problem and you really work it deeply and you really understand the domain, then you can have some unique insights. And I I think over the course of my life, I've maybe just been in the right place at the right time where the right technology and the right problems to solve came together. Uh, so, So although I'd like to take credit for my sleeplessness and focus. (laughs) Maybe it was more Forrest Gump and just being in that right place at the moment.
1: Right. Well, it helps when you're also all over the place. You happen to be in a lot of places at one time, it seems. So you happen to be, you know, that that could certainly help your success ratio and rate.
2: Could be, I suppose.
1: (laughs) But also, um, we are in an interesting time, though, and I think you bring up a good point because I've actually changed how I communicate with people when i communicate where i communicate and how i collaborate around you know this new dynamic on attention spans and, and how people absorb information and how they want to absorb information so i know we're not going to spend a lot of time on that but i'd love your your two cents on that because that is changing on how people just again absorb information how they engage even healthcare and how they feel about healthcare so any quick thoughts there
2: Well, as you have suggested, I've also changed my mechanisms of interaction. And, you know, I've written 2,000 plus blog entries. And what I found is writing 1,000 word blog entries, although it's very satisfying, actually isn't always the best way to communicate with cohorts. So you'll find that I'm much more active on social media now than I ever was. Mm -hmm. So I have my Facebook feed and daily comments on the industry. I have a Twitter feed. I have Instagram. And fine, you know, that gets the message out, although admittedly, I think it's a bit superficial.
1: Yeah, and and I I couldn't agree more. That's actually when I did a lot of thought leadership all the way into about 2014 and in, in written form in blogs and uh, testimonies and so forth but now I've really shifted heavily that was where the radio show was born it was just a new way to communicate a new way to share thought leadership and also collaborate with others in the industry and even globally where we didn't have to sit you know and, and write the same write on the same pieces but also have uh have access to the show and to to broadcast in a new medium so uh, i i agree and it's kind of one of the ways i've personally evolved so
2: and what yeah. I also try to do is recognize that I have people working for me in their 20s. I have people working for me in their 70s. And you have to assume that not one size fits all. And so, yes, I phone. Yes, I fax. Yes, I email. Yeah. And yes, I tweet.
1: Yeah, that works. <laughs> Great wisdom there. So, Paul, let's shift a little bit. So how did this book come about? Because uh, it was, I've read several excerpts. This is this is. Fascinating. And this book is terrific. So, you know, realizing the promise of precision medicine, how did you uh, come about there? Actually, the, the, the idea for this book
0: started about 30 years ago uh, when I was in graduate school. I was working on uh, my final dissertation, my final thesis on biochemical individuality, which is actually the biological underpinning for precision medicine. Uh, back then, the word precision medicine didn't even exist. I was talking about the 1980s. But then over the, the decades, I continued to follow the research on genetic individuality and biochemical individuality and so on. And then, a few years ago, uh, Obama decided to launch the Precision Medicine Initiative. And once I saw that, I said, okay, this is time. To, it's time now to, to publish. Um, So with that in mind, um, a couple of years before his announcement, uh, John and I started working together on Information Week Healthcare. He uh, was uh, on our editorial board, so I knew of his expertise in healthcare IT and especially its role in in personalized medicine. So I approached him and said, "Uh, would you like to co-author the book? And he said, yep, great. So that was was the, the initial impetus. Uh, and just around that time, I had just finished writing a book for Elsevier on protecting patient information. So I had a good uh, relationship with a, a big name uh, publishing company. So John and I approached them, put together a, a book proposal. And sure enough, the rest is history, as they say.
1: So how long did it take you to write this book?
0: How long? About a year, year and three months. I've, almost felt like doing another uh, dissertation. It was was really intense for both of us.
1: I can imagine. So let's open with population medicine versus precision medicine. What are the differences there?
0: Okay, Uh, Population medicine, typically you're talking about uh, randomized controlled trials in which thousands of patients are are, uh, studied. And they might divide uh, the group into one half receives a drug, let's say, and the other half gets a placebo. And then the results are um, pretty – it's considered the gold standard, a a randomized controlled trial. The problem with that type of a study is that it gives you results for the average patient. Uh, And there are a lot of patients who are just not average. You know, they fall outside of the realm. so it tends to result in a one-size-fits-all approach mm-hmm. to healthcare, and that really is not enough for a lot of patients who have uh, unique characteristics, who have genetic variants that are different from the from the average. So there's a need for for a more personalized approach, and that's one of the things that we get into in the book. Um, one of the examples that that I like to use is randomized control trials have proven that giving patients statins uh, if they're at high risk for heart disease reduces the likelihood of them getting a uh, heart attack mm-hmm. but then there's another statistic that shows only one in 20 patients respond to a drug like crestor which is a statin so if only one in 20 patients are responding there are an awful lot of people who are not so clearly we need a better approach uh, to figuring out what the needs are for patients who respond and patients who don't respond. So that's what what the precision medicine initiative is all about.
1: That's fascinating. A friend of mine. Um, have you heard of cultural intelligence by chance? There's a, there's a strategy out there. And it follows this kind of precision medicine um, acumen. But have you heard of that cultural intelligence by chance? No, I haven't. Have you, John? I have not. Okay, I mean, in a so not basically in short run, it's um it bases study on your culture and basically your background. So, in di- different ethnicities, um, react differently to certain po- to certain drugs or variances in, in different um, uh, chemical calculations and so forth. And it's just basically um, it's it's. It's, it follows the lines of genomics, um, but yet along cultural lines, and, and so I can it's see just that actually being
0: I can see that being a type of precision medicine.
1: Exactly, and it is. The
0: the example that that uh, we used, John and I spoke at a precision medicine uh, conference sponsored by Hims back in the summertime, and one of the examples that I use is, you take take Mrs. Smith and Mr. Patrick, both of them have um, Heart disease. Mm -hmm. But Mrs. Smith, um, 80% of her heart disease is a result of a genetic uh, abnormality, whereas 10% is poor diet and 10% is stress. Whereas somebody like Mr. Patrick, 50% of it may be the result of psychosocial stress and genetics of a very small part of the problem. So obviously, those individuals need to be treated very, very differently, and the assessment done on them has, has to be very different to pick out those unique uh, characteristics
1: uh, very true so John what are a few of the main precision medicine initiatives and programs out there and you cover some of these in your book right? so let's talk about those
2: yeah sure but let me give you a couple of different architectures mm-hmm. uh, the example we use in the book is that my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer in December of 2011 there was estrogen positive progesterone positive, and HER2 negative she's Korean was 50 at the time Shouldn't any doctor or any patient be able to say of the last 10,000 patients like me and I don't need their names or their zip codes There's not a privacy issue of the last 10,000 like me. What were their treatments? What were their outcomes? What were the morbidity mortality side effects and those kinds of things? So we have a tool around the 17 Harvard hospitals called I2B2 that enables us to do that kind of query show me for these characteristics other patients and their outcomes and their drugs and their issues. And we use that to refine her chemotherapy regimen resulting in cure without the side effect of neuropathy from Taxol. As well, we are seeing that more and more companies and there are big companies and small companies, there's established multinationals and 26 year olds in their garages creating cloud hosted decision support services such that you can forward data to them and they will come back with care plans or care information or assessment of whether a drug is good or bad for a given patient based on clinical characteristics like their genome or something in their phenotype. And so there are, again, you know, I don't endorse any particular company, I have no conflict of interest here, Mm -hmm. but we're working with a lot of these firms because we think the future is not just going to be your EHR, Epic, Cerner, Meditech, uh, whatever. It's going to be the cloud-hosted services surrounding that EHR that really provide you the guidance to deliver precision medicine.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, so, what are some, So, what about Clinical Query and Shrine and some of the other items that you initiatives that you talk about in programs?
2: Right. So with I2B2, it's in effect sending the data, not to a common repository, but an application that enables you to query. So you say, how many patients like this are there? And it gives you a number. 47, right? No, no patient-identified information. Yep. Send the question to the data, not the data to a repository. And clinical query and Shrine are just ways of doing that in a much larger scale. Shrine, for example, queries 60 academic medical centers simultaneously. Uh, With clinical query, what we've added to is some features to itb to Enshrine that we can directly now enroll patients in clinical trials. Once you find patients like uh, who has this disease and has failed this therapy, you can then immediately get their primary care doctors to get in touch with them so that you can get them into a clinical trial
1: that's excellent I love it that's that's exactly where healthcare needs to shift and it, it's awesome that's shifting there because I don't see that in a lot of places across the country even the world so that's excellent um, and for those just tuning in uh, we're speaking with Paul Serato and dr. John Halamka about their new book realizing the promise of precision medicine so Paul we touched on this a moment ago uh, but what is and just briefly so I'd love to dive in here a little bit what is the role of genomics in personalized medicine
0: okay it helps to distinguish between genetics and genomics because old school genetic testing would typically involve a physician testing for a particular disease, like let's say cystic fibrosis, Mm -hmm. where you just look at one gene. Whereas genomics now, we now have the ability to take a patient's cells and look at their entire uh, genetic makeup. So that's 46 chromosomes and about 20,000 genes. And the prices come down, way, way down. It's like the last number I saw was $600 to do a a complete uh, genetic workup. The advantage of doing that is they can now analyze a patient's tumor to look for mutations in that tumor. And then if one of those mutations is effectively resolved with the help of a specific drug, then the patient gets that drug. So it's very, very individualized. The other side of the coin is there's something called pharmacogenomics, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a an area of research in which um, they're now looking at how individuals respond to specific drugs. Uh, there are certain mutations, uh, for instance, in the liver that uh, can, uh, if if you have that particular mutation, your liver enzymes don't break down drugs like warfarin. So Uh, that in turn affects the dose that is most effective. So the FDA has approved a long list of precision medicine drugs uh, that uh, have these uh, pharmacogenomic profiles associated with them so that docs can now do that type of testing. The only problem is that a lot of docs are not really getting on the bandwagon. They're really not doing the, the pharmacogenomic testing uh, either they don't know about it, they don't believe in it, or um, insurers are not covering it. So it's a work in progress right now.
1: Yeah, and that was going to be my follow-up to that, because while the cost has come down significantly, I just don't find people offering it. And I I, I work with an extremely advanced primary care physician in office here in Atlanta and love them. Bed, great bedside manner, ter- manner terrific medicine. Um, you know, they keep me, you know, fairly healthy, which is God bless. Um, but I have not been approached about, you know, genetic testing or genomics or anything of the sort. And I, I guess I just don't hear about it. I hear, you know, uh, might be in the White House, and there's a company that does it that's there or someone like, you know, we'll be out there speaking. And there's individuals, companies who are doing it in, in individual cases. But what are some of your thoughts there and why? Um, and I'd love to from both of you. Wh- why don't we hear more about this? Because this is extremely important. can be so helpful. Uh, knowing, you know, knowledge is power. So, uh, start so with- part of
0: the part of the reason is that that physicians don't get a lot of in-depth training in medical school on genetics. So there's, and there's a whole movement now in order to to re-educate docs and to do more CME uh, mm-hmm. seminars so that they can get educated. The other part of it is, frankly, a lot of. Um, Genetic testing does not have value in primary care. I mean, if you go into the doctor's office with a sore throat, there's no reason to right. to run a genetic testing. Whereas, if you go in with with prostate cancer or breast cancer, there there are a lot of genes that have been recognized to be associated with those diseases. So, there's more justification to to do that testing. John, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Well, certainly. So, imagine. And I think, Paul, this is maybe an example you and I have, have discussed before that um, I was the second human in the personal genome project to be fully sequenced in the world. And it shows, and if you want to look at my genome, feel free, personalgenomes.org, I'm um, that I will develop prostate cancer. And so I'm a vegan, I don't eat any cholesterol, I have by genetics, you know, very good family history and I don't have uh, any uh, cholesterol issues. But yet, so the New England Journal will tell us by default we should do LDL, HDL, triglyceride, and cholesterol testing on every patient. But we should stop looking at prostate specific antigen because over the course of the population it really hasn't helped. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe in my particular case if the issue is prostate cancer, as you were talking about, Paul, this idea of maybe testing for certain genetic conditions, understanding certain biomarkers, and then changing lifestyle or medications or monitoring to help avoid badness. Uh, Because, yes, ankle sprains and sore throats, no role for genetic testing. Certainly for cancers, there are.
1: And what about, though, like annual physicals? Or maybe you turn over 45 years old or 35 or 40 years old, Is there an argument to be made just on an annual physical to have it done at a certain age, or we're not there yet?
2: Well, so I have this crazy belief that what if, let's say the cost of my genomic sequence was quite high because I was the second human. But imagine that today the cost of a full genetic sequence is about 600 bucks. If at birth, every human is sequenced. And then we understand throughout your life how to tailor your care based on a single $600 investment. Yeah. <laughs> don't you think we're going to save more than 600 bucks?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, that, that would be cost effective, no doubt.
2: Uh, no, no, I don't think it should wait till your next physical exam. Every human should have it now at first. Right.
1: Good. That's what I wanted to hear. I completely agree. Um, and I'm going to get mine done. I love it. All right. So go with moving through the book. Um, Paul, tell us about the chapter, small data, big data, data analytics, um, and your thoughts there.
0: This is the most exciting part of, of precision medicine, in yeah. my opinion. Um, data analytics, I really think, it is, is the future of healthcare, and it's the future of uh, precision medicine. One of the examples that we use in the book, and that we'll, we'll talk about when we uh, speak uh, uh, in March, I think, yep. is two studies. One of them was done in 2002, the Diabetes Prevention Program, and they took about 3,000 patients who were at risk for diabetes. They didn't have it, and they split them up into three groups. One was a control group. One group got metformin, which is a popular diabetes drug, and the third group was given an intensive lifestyle program. So then when when they did all the the analysis, they found that uh, the two experimental treatments did lower the likelihood of getting diabetes, but only a percentage of patients had less risk. So you take 1,000 patients, you put them on metformin. about seven of them got diabetes and 300 of them didn't. The problem was the researchers couldn't figure out from day one which which patients would and would not get the disease. So they had to take the drug or they had to go through the the intensive program and get no benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Despite that fact, the researchers said, wouldn't it be great if the millions of patients who are are at risk for diabetes be put on one of these two programs? Well, (laughs) that's really not justified. So along comes a a researcher named Jeremy Sussman, um, University of Michigan, and they did a much deeper analysis of the raw data from the diabetes prevention trial. And instead of just looking at three risk factors, being overweight, having abnormal fasting blood glucose, and having an abnormal glucose tolerance test, they looked at 17 risk factors, and they plugged it into the sophisticated data analytics program. And what they were able to do was figure out more precisely who would be most likely to get the disease and who would most likely not get the disease. So it really gave them a precision approach to predicting the disease and figuring out who should get the treatment and who shouldn't. So that's the type of research that is really going to transform healthcare.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, John. Anything you want to add to that on the on the data? I mean, the importance of data. It's a that's a big topic. But I think you're you're a leader here, so I'm gonna be, give you a chance here too. So,
2: sure. So one of the challenges we have with healthcare data is much of our healthcare data is bad. <laughs> and, and what do I mean by that? So uh, you can't see my hands, but on my left hand, I have a turkey bite, and on my right hand, I have a pig bite. This is what happens when you run an animal sanctuary. Mm-hmm. So I showed my hands to a primary care doc, and I said, "Will you, of course, go into my medical record and codify that I have animal bites and specify the species. And he said, are you kidding me? You have 12 minutes to see the patient, enter 140 data elements, have 40 quality measurements, never commit malpractice, and be empathetic. I'll just say abrasion right, but well, wait a minute. what if I develop some bizarre zoonosis you know an infection caused by an animal, and there's zero record of my ever being bitten by an animal so we just have to understand that the healthcare data as recorded today has limitations.
1: I could not agree more. I bring up some good points so. At that, we're going to take a quick pause here for a station break, but we'll be right back after these messages.
0: You are listening to Healthcare Now Radio. For program information and schedules, visit us at
1: www.healthcarenowradio.com. Welcome back, and thank you for to everyone for joining us. My guests today are Paul Sorato and Dr. John Halamka, and we're discussing their new book, Realizing the Promise of Precision Medicine. Well, thank you, gentlemen. So continuing on our discussion, um, we just covered uh, small data, big data, and data analytics, and a couple of great examples by both of you. And it's kind of ironic. I was watching a story last night just on Atlanta and where a lot of our boom is in our economy, and and healthcare technology is is one of the leaders, but coming up behind that uh, very quickly is fintech, uh, and then just uh, is big data in general. Because obviously, big data feeds fintech. Big data feeds healthcare IT. It, it feeds, you know, obviously information technology across the board. Um, so it's kind of ironic that, that they plan on data uh, and uh, and just big data in general and data scientists as being one of the biggest uh, drivers of our economy in uh, in Atlanta over the next five years. So it's kind of it's kind of cool. Uh, and again, that story was just last night here in Atlanta. So. Um, but, Paul, uh, what's the role of mobile technology in EHRs uh, around personalizing healthcare? And obviously, near and dear to my heart, I'm one of the early people and investors in, in uh, Greenway Medical, and we had a lot of fun with that company. But, uh, what are your thoughts there, mobile technology and EHRs?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, right now, w- we hear a lot of criticism from uh, thought leaders about whether precision medicine is ever going to have clinical benefits. Some of them say, yeah, somewhere down the road, but not right now. But in terms of diabetes care Mm -hmm. and the role of uh, mobile apps, that's happening right now. Uh, There are a number of uh, effective mobile apps that physicians and patients can use together to track their blood glucose levels, and it's having a very real impact on the course of their their disease. There's a, uh, a mobile app by a company called Bluestar uh, that's used for type 2 diabetes. And at least one study that we mentioned in the book has demonstrated that it can lower hemoglobin A1C levels by about 2%. And that's a significant number. So it's real. It's happening now. It's just a question of getting enough clinicians on board to start using these apps and figuring out a way to use them without uh, the physician spending an an unusual amount of time since, as John said, typically they've only got fifteen to twenty minutes per patient visit. Yeah, John, you want to talk about the EHRs in, in this respect?
2: Yeah, sure. So I have seven petabytes of patient identified data and the Beth Israel Deaconess EHR, two million patients going back to 1977. Do you think that if the EHR is just a dumb database recording transactions about an encounter, that doctors are going to like it or find it useful? How much does your doctor love their EHR? (laughs) Not so much. (laughs) So what needs to happen is that the EHRs need to be a tool you look forward to using because they're turning the data into wisdom. That as you go to take an action, What you're getting is the benefit of decision support and care planning customized to that patient's history and that patient's care preference. And suddenly, the EHR becomes an essential tool and not just a dumb data entry vehicle or word processor for you. And EHR vendors and, as we mentioned, the third parties that connect to them are very much thinking about how to enhance usability and reduce the burden on clinicians. That's where we hope it goes.
1: No, agree. Have you guys, do you, you, must, you know Andy Yuri. Do you know Dr. Yuri by chance, guys? He did a company. Sure. Okay. He did a company, not, I mean, along these lines, I believe he was trying to bring uh, genomics, genetics inside of EHRs and help with that technology. I don't know if you guys have seen that technology or i bringing that up. I
2: have worked with a cloud hosted company um, in San Diego that is doing that same sort of thing. And the idea being that you know there's thousands of rules, mm-hmm. and those rules are changing on a daily basis. So what you want to do is curate the rule set in one place. Not try to have every hospital system in America try to curate their own rule set. Right. Beth Israel ridiculous, two thousand rules. The Brigham has two thousand <laughs> rules. They're totally different rules. Right. So love the idea of being able to query con- uh, aggregates of rules send the data to those rules and get an intelligent response and there are a couple of companies doing that excellent
1: so this is for both of you start off with you john what are a few recommendations for overcoming the barriers and limitations of precision medicine
2: well first there has to be an economic incentive to do it
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and in a fee-for-service world of course we're happy when you come to the hospital wait we don't want you to be sick, we want you to be well, right. so why don't you pay us for outcomes and quality instead? Suddenly, if that's the motivation, then as we talked about, sequencing you at birth, custom tailoring your care plan, avoiding the wasteful statin that does nothing, will be the right motivation. So probably a combination of economic incentives, maybe a little workflow redesign, and sure, some better tools to help you get to the answers quicker.
1: So to put you on the spot a little bit here, are there one or two initiatives out there that you see, maybe you're a part of, that you can say, you know what, these are good steps in the right direction? I know there's a lot of little things happening, but anything that kind of rises above the fray or, or the, the daily activities that you would like to highlight that are good steps in this direction?
2: Well, you know, I could say machine learning and a cloud-hosted blockchain with mobile APIs. Does that help?
1: It does Just doesn't. kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So the Argonaut initiative, yeah. which is the way of creating these fire implementation guides that make it trivially simple for electronic health records to get and put clinical decision support information to third parties will help a lot. If we're going to get to this ecosystem of apps and cloud-hosted services, having the interoperability that makes it very simple is important. And you'll find that at, you know, just Google Argonaut Project. You'll find all the details.
1: Yep. Nope. Argonauts made some great strides uh, over the last several years. So, Paul, what are some of your recommendations for overcoming these barriers in precision medicine and limitations? Uh,
0: I think one of the, the barriers that that docs are dealing with is the mindset that uh, we already practice precision medicine. We practice personalized medicine. We don't need to learn anything more. We don't need a 200 million dollar project. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and to a certain extent. That's true. You go into a doctor's office, uh, let's say you, you, you need a statin or you need to have your blood your blood uh, lipids lowered. Before they give you a statin, they'll ask questions like, do you have liver disease? Okay, do you, have, you have liver disease? Well, i got to give you something different. So that's personalization up to a point. But as we're going to bring out when we speak in March, it's precision medicine or personalized medicine with a lowercase p. It's not really what we're aiming for. What we're aiming for is to dig into the root causes of disease to figure out all the contributing, interlocking risk factors that cause disease. And then once we figure those out, then to really personalize medicine, rather than simply say, OK, um, you don't take a statin, or if you uh, have an infection, we won't give you penicillin, penicillin because you're allergic to it. That, that, those are the baby steps that are now being taken. But what we really need to do is go way beyond that. And that's something that we go over, we discuss in, in, the, in the lecture in, in March. So it's it's about changing the mindset. Yes, personalized medicine exists today, but we can do so much more and you folks have to be open minded to, to those new changes.
1: Yeah, no, excellent point. So let's shift a little bit over to interoperability. John, you just brought that up uh, as a a key factor here. Um, So how do you see or want interoperability handled with personalized patient care?
2: So a couple of things you often read about information blocking. Mm -hmm. And I'm very controversial. I say I have never seen such a thing. Um, If there is a technology platform, a good policy and a business case, data will flow. So where are some of the areas we need to do a bit more. The Challenge, of course, is well, maybe if your name is Justin Barnes, you're okay because there aren't so many of those in the US. But if your name is Joe Smith, you're never gonna have precision medicine that combines data from all the sites of care using your name and date of birth, right? It just doesn't work. So you need some nationwide patient matching strategy. We need a bit more uniform policy. Because right? in New Hampshire, it's illegal to send data to public health. Too much government. Whereas in Massachusetts, it's required. So wait, I can step on two sides of a state line and have totally different interoperability requirements? That's nutty. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, what we want is we want you know some public-private partnerships to create some infrastructure that just makes data exchange very simple, such as... A provider directory of every doctor and hospital and their electronic address. Wouldn't that be great? Because right now, sure, your EHR can send data electronically. You just have no idea where to send it to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Those are a couple of things in addition to fire that will really help interoperability.
1: So, <clears throat> move along those lines. Are there any initiatives again that you would point to? They say, hey, you know what? This framework is doing a good job. It's not the end-all be-all, but it's a good step in the direction. Are there anything, is there anything out there that you would like to get, I like this, or, or this could move us in the right direction? Are there any framework, structures, agreements, initiatives that you want to highlight?
2: Sure. Well, I'll give you two examples. So I'm working with the Gates Foundation in Africa to unify the HIV data of South Africa. Mm-hmm. challenge there is they don't have a national healthcare identifier or a nationwide patient matching strategy, and they have names, genders, dates of birth, just as problematic as ours. Mm-hmm. So we've decided to deploy iris scanners in mm-hmm. all the clinics and tag your individual laboratory results with a link to your iris scan. So all you do is show up at any clinic in the country and say, I've seen those irises before, and here is all the precision data about you. So we've already started the pilot, and hopefully in the course of the next year, we'll roll out very broadly. So, you know, if it works in Soweto, maybe it'll work in Boston. I mean, it's a thought. Right. (laughs) So, So that's certainly one initiative. Other initiatives, the Pew Charitable Trust is about to issue a major report on a year worth of work on creating a nationwide patient matching strategy, looking at all available policies, technologies, and pilots. And so I think that will help move us forward. So, you know, I don't want to say anything political, but I think maybe the last administration took more of a government-oriented role in leading innovation. I think the next three to four years will belong to the private sector. So watch innovations coming out of the private sector.
1: Yeah, excellent. Great advice, and for those just tuning in, we're speaking with Paul Serrato and Dr. John Halamka about their new book, Realizing the Promise of Precision Medicine, and we'll also touch on Hims here uh, in a little bit. But before we do that, Paul, how do we protect patient privacy here and implement the best security on data? I know that you have uh, some great studies here, so I'd love to hear this.
0: Yeah, good question. I actually spent an entire year investigating this question, and it resulted in the publication of my first book, Protecting Patient Information, There are a lot of very simple steps that uh, small and medium sized practices can take in order to protect patient information. But one of the first obstacles that they have to overcome is the unwillingness by decision makers to spend the money. Uh, You know, you look at a a um, chief um, CEO, for instance, of of a small hospital and he or she is trying to decide, should I put a million dollars into the next MRI machine, which is gonna generate a lot of revenue immediately, or should I put a million dollars into storing up our security system? Uh, The temptation is to go with the first one because you don't see an immediate return on investment on security. The problem is down the road, you may lose millions of dollars once your protected health information has been compromised. In terms of HIPAA fines, in terms of class action lawsuits, in terms of a damaged reputation in the public. Because once you get a big breach like that, you are required by law to inform the media. And once the media finds out, you know, you never know where it's going to go. So the question comes up, what what are the simple, relatively inexpensive uh, steps to take in order to show up your... your, uh, Healthcare system, show sure, up the data in the healthcare system. Uh, obvious things like encrypting mobile devices. Yep. Uh, a lot of laptops have been stolen with sensitive information that wasn't encrypted, and the result was expensive HIPAA fines. Um, things like updating your antiviral programs, um, training, phys- training physicians and other staffers to uh, create easy to remember but hard to forget. Passwords and there are certain tricks that you can do to do that. I mean, you don't want to you don't want to use a password like one two three four or your pet's name, right? Because there are now uh, password cracking software that can go through every word in the alphabet in a few minutes. So you've got to come up with something a little more original than that. Um, other things that come to mind are doing a a, a detailed risk assessment to figure out where in your computer network are the weaknesses, because you can't address the weaknesses unless you really know what they are. So go one by one through every device, through every system you have, to figure out where the vulnerabilities are. And then if you need to, you bring in an expert, an outside expert, to to address them. There's so many things you can do. And the very last thing, probably the most important thing in my mind, is training employees to avoid phishing scams. Mm You know the, the employees are the weakest link in security in any hospital or any practice, and it's so easy to fall into temptation. You know, you see a, a uh, an email that says this is a great shopping uh, site. Why don't you jump in here? And it's and it's sent by your best buddy down the road, but actually it wasn't sent by your best buddy. And once you click on the link, now you you've got malware on your computer and before long the hackers are into uh, all the sensitive uh, patient information
1: yep no it's that's great advice and I I know that I have security guests on my show probably about every quarter and I know one of the big ones also is whitelisting software and not and basically having set uh, websites that uh, employees can visit that we know are safe and they just can't get to any website just because they're hitting on a you know phishing software will send you to wherever uh, you basically go through this whitelisting strategy, and it really can help your organization stay secure and not uh, Good advice. fall prey. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and moving right along, got about 10 minutes or so left. So, real quickly, um, from both of you, Uh, I'll start off with you, Paul. What's your advice and thoughts for consumer and patient engagement? How do we, you know, uh, increase this? I know this is actually we saw one of these recent announcements from Amazon and and Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan, and engagement is high on their list and trying to, you know, help our healthcare system. What are some of your thoughts there? I
0: think patient engagement is a 2 edged sword in that uh, both the clinician and the patient has responsibility. Uh, Clinicians don't always know the reaction that patients have to to their comments. It's very rare that a patient who leaves the practice uh, and complains to his neighbor, But Dr. Smith really was very insensitive. Mm -hmm. The the doctor never hears that. There's there's an interesting program at Cleveland Clinic where they're actually teaching docs to, to develop better relationships with patients by giving feedback. As to what their patients have actually told said about them after they leave the practice so part of it is a more sensitive clinician but also part of it is the patient has to take a certain amount of self-responsibility there's a whole movement now referred to as the activated patient a lot of folks are starting to say okay i'm not going to leave my health care in the hands of my doctor i'm going to learn all i possibly can and when i go in I'm going to make it clear that this is what I understand. What can we do
1: about it? So it's it's a two-way sword. Mm -hmm. Yep, nope. John, anything you want to add to that?
2: Well, certainly. So as you know, interoperability always usually takes two forms, provider-to-provider data exchange and provider-to-patient-to-provider exchange. And as you've seen with Apple's new announcement in um, iOS Mm 11.3, the intent is it will be trivially simple using these Argonaut standards for a phone to host your lifetime medical information, and you, the patient, can do with it what you will. Share it uh, with family, or forward it to a clinical trial, or bring it to a new caregiver. And so to me, making the tools just simple and really effortless has got to be the best way to engage patients and families.
1: Love it. Great advice. So shifting here a little bit now to our HIMSS 18 crystal ball. You're always a great guest. You guys will be on my show uh, during HIMSS uh, annual conference again this year. But um, what are some of the trends, John, that you see and major themes uh, coming up for annual conference and HIMSS?
2: My worry is that just like we saw big data on every booth last year, <laughs> we're going to see blockchain on every booth this year. <laughs> and I'm the editor of Blockchain and Healthcare, a new peer-reviewed journal, and there are use cases for which blockchains helpful, but by no means is it a panacea, nor does it replace any relational data store we already have. So, you know, I, I already mentioned some of the Gartner hype curve terms. So it's mm-hmm. going to be machine learning and AI. It's going to be, you know, certainly we'll probably see some precision medicine out there, mm-hmm. care management, population health, and blockchain.
1: Excellent. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, so what are some of the uh, you know trends that you're specifically addressing that you're most excited about for 2018 and
2: 2019? So, sure. So I have Amazon and Google employees embedded in my organization working on novel machine learning approaches mm-hmm. for real-world simple problems. This isn't, I'm going to replace the doctor with machine learning. No. Right. This is... Well, Justin Barnes has done 1,000 appendectomies, and he can do them in 25 minutes with high quality, whereas Paul has only done three appendectomies, and he takes two hours. But yet, we allocate two hours of OR time for every appendectomy. Hmm. Why? That's dumb, right? So we're working with Amazon to build OR schedules that are allocated based on your experience with the procedure and the patient's specifics. Or how is it that I make sure patients show up to their appointment? And how do I address capacity and throughput issues? So it's these kinds of novel applications that use these emerging technologies to solve very tractable problems that excite me.
1: Yeah, you bring up a good point. Um, I've been collaborating with uh, um, Amazon and the Alexa app uh, with Lenovo. And basically some of the best practice that we've learned out in the field is kind of voice first, But not voice only. And we brought this up in a think tank that uh, I'm a part of. But I'm um, in just the importance. So you bring up, I mean, AI and, and machine learning can teach us so much. Uh, we, we're just scratching the surface, but it, it's these kind of little things, like I said, uh, you know, voice first, but you know, not voice only, because this is going to help patients and, and, you know, engagement and so forth. So, no, excellent. So, and this is kind of the fun aspect. i like to shift the show a little bit now. We touched we talked, uh, touched, on hymns 18. Very excited for that conference. Um, but now, personally, John, where do you invest uh, in your community and what charities do you support? This is something as I get older and, and hopefully a little bit wiser, I spend more time, my personal time and even some of my uh, per, uh, business time. But, uh, but where do you invest your, your time, talent, and treasures?
2: Okay. Well, this is mm-hmm. going to sound probably possibly self-interested, so I want to be careful. But you know that five years ago, my wife and I established Unity Farm and Unity Farm Sanctuary, mm-hmm. a 501c3, for the rescue of sick, abandoned, and abused animals. And so I donate one half of my earnings every year to animal rescue. Wow. And today we have 250 animals on 70 acres and provide their lifetime uh, forever homes. Uh, so that's certainly where I spend a, a fair amount of my energy and resources.
1: <laughs> wow, that is. Yeah. And I just started to learn more about that over uh, the last couple of months. And, and John, it's fantastic. So I look forward to hearing more. Um, it's not self-serving at all. Uh, this is exactly why I want to have people like you on the show. Um, and Paul, I'd love to hear a couple of your thoughts here. Um, where do you uh, invest in your community or charities that you support?
0: Uh, actually, one of the—I chari- I, I don't know if you'd call it charity—but uh, our uh, local uh, fire department, yeah. volunteer fire departments, and, and I think that's a worthy cause. I don't especially like giving money to charities that I know nothing about, or that that are na- nationwide and spend a lot of their money on administrative costs. Sure. So when I give money to the local fire department, I know that it's going to benefit people, you know, right here in the community. So that's that's where I like to. To put some of my money and in terms of personal um, interests uh, music is one of my passions so i have a recording studio that uh, does a lot of uh, a lot of fun stuff when i'm not doing when i'm not writing books and thinking about data analytics
1: No, that's fantastic and, and i appreciate uh, your investment of time of the fire department i served in the military for six years And the best thing I ever did was to serve this country and and serve someone other than myself. So thank you for that, Paul. And and obviously, John, (laughs) love what you do. That's near and dear to my heart. So, real quickly here, kind of the last question for you, John. Uh, Paul just mentioned his music studio and his recording studio, but what is your favorite place to get or be inspired?
2: Wow, of course. uh, Traveling the world 400,000 miles a year, there's there's so many possibilities. But uh, four years ago, I built a treehouse on the farm property, and the treehouse, uh, which does have a strong Wi-Fi connection, by the way, <laughs> that's great. Is where I go in order to do the deep learning, the writing, the thought, and the retreat. It's in a 150-year-old maple tree, 35 feet off the ground, wow. and it is unlikely I'll be bothered there. Wow! And I've
0: seen that, and I've seen that treehouse. It's very impressive.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this show. Uh, you both are a true pleasure, and, and our industry is lucky to have you both. So thank you very much. Thank you, Justin.
2: Enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah.
1: And great to have everybody join us as well. And thank you for taking the time of your busy schedules to, uh, to take time with us. And thank you um, again for listening. And please tune in weekdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. As always, you can track me on Twitter at HIT Advisor and use the hashtag ThisJustInRadio so we can respond to your comments from the show. If you missed this episode or any aspect of the episode and want to hear more, uh, you can always uh, check them out on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Google Play, and TuneIn. So uh, we've really broad, uh, broadened our outreach and very excited to have all those partners now part of This Justin Radio show. Uh, and also you can check out our new website that we've launched at justinbarnes.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a terrific week.